This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And there's a lot to talk about as Canadians head back to work and to school and that amid a surging number of COVID infections. The Trudeau government is wrapping up a cabinet retreat and, as you heard in Bob's news, set to announce some retaliatory trade measures against the U.S. Do you think any of that will affect you? And there is a lot of speculation that the Liberals are taking the opportunity of the crisis over the pandemic to have a complete overhaul of our social programs. And the word was that the idea of a basic minimum income was high on the agenda at that retreat. We will drill down on that. And we're following up on a story broken by the Globe and Mail about the early warning system for pandemics that was apparently cancelled under the Liberals' watch. And the health minister, Patty Haidu, wasn't even aware of it. But now she's launched an investigation into how that happened. And the early warning system has apparently been reinstated. What is all that about. We know that at the beginning of this, we were kind of behind the eight ball, uh, listening a little too closely to what the World Health Organization was saying, which was low risk, don't close your borders, uh, and all of that. Meanwhile, at the provincial level, there's still a lot of anxiety and disagreement about the Ford government's plans for reopening schools. The arrangements, are they safe enough? We know that a huge number of parents have, uh, change their choice from in-school learning to online learning. And the premier is warning, hey, if these numbers keep going up, uh, we might go to a second lockdown. He won't hesitate. So there is definitely a lot to chew over there. Let me give you the numbers. We want to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by John Capobianco, who is a senior vice president and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, the CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, the Managing Principal of the Toronto Office of the Ernst Cliff Strategy Group. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, Libby. Okay. Let us start with uh, Charles. Uh, so there's this cabinet retreat wrapping up, and uh, the word is, was that uh, basic minimum income is pretty high on the agenda there. Yeah, the formal cabinet retreat has taken place uh, yesterday and today, but ministers have been beavering away for some weeks, and a lot of different items are on the table. Um, there's a hard look happening with regards to child care. Uh, there's also pharmacare. And there is, there is um, discussion, of, as I understand it, of a, of a basic income, which is something that's been talked about largely by political science 
scientists for, for many years, but appears to be crafted in the context of COVID, which is to say we've obviously over recent months been through, you know, a pretty grave economic shock as a result of the pandemic and the resulting lockdown. And it feels like we need to update our social supports to ensure that if we ever do face circumstances like this in the future, perhaps for entirely different reasons, uh, global economic shock or what have you, that we need to have programs in place that will work in the context of the 21st century and 2020 and all that's to follow. Because if there's anything the pandemic has made clear, it's that uncertainty is one of the watchwords going forward. Um, and, and that is especially true of governments. Uh, Charles, before I move to our conservative panelists, what do you say to people who charge that uh, the Liberals are using the cover of COVID to move very far to the left with all of this? I don't see it as cover. Um, In fact, from a political perspective, it's quite risky. I mean, Paul Martin was able to eliminate the deficit in the 1990s, and even he would tell you that that would not have been possible without all the groundwork that had been laid by former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney and uh, by his Minister of Finance, Michael Wilson. And it's very, very difficult to impose change from on high unless you have a significant degree of buy-in from the Canadian people. So this kind of change is actually politically quite risky. But at the same time, it's, it's an absolutely necessary review that we have to do because we just have to be ready going forward because, frankly, the economy and the global economy won't be able to withstand these kinds of shocks if, if we see them uh, if we see them again and we haven't made the necessary changes. John Capobianco, how do you see that? Well, you know, Libby, this, uh, the Prime Minister doesn't have a particularly good track record when it comes to, you know, trying to sneak things through or, or trying to use the cover of something else to try to get some, something from a policy perspective implemented. We saw it from the days of COVID when he tried to get the all-reaching power uh, of spending, and that was shut down by uh, then-leader Scheer. Uh, and then we saw the, the gun rules and the gun laws that he tried to implement without Parliament being able to debate it. And now we're seeing this. So his track record on, on this is not particularly uh, strong with respect to using whatever tools he can to get things through. Uh, and I, and I also, you know, I also, you know, read with interest the fact that, you know, the prime minister, you know, wanted to consult, uh, leaders, but, but has not consulted leaders with respect to his throne speech, which I think gives more fuel to the flames that, you know, he, um, uh, you know, is not, you know, particularly keen about or interested in having an election or wants to have an election. I think it would probably behoove him if he didn't want to have an election to speak to some of the opposition members, at least go through the motions of trying to hear what they wanted to do and, and maybe even implement some of their policies in the throne speech so he could say in his throne speech, I spoke with the NDP leader and I've got this policy in here. I spoke with uh, the Greens and I've got this policy in here uh, to try to get at least them to support a, a confidence uh, motion, uh, or at least vote against a non-confidence motion. But, you know, the fact that he's not doing that kind of seems to me that he's more than happy to go to an election if an election is, uh, is uh, in, in the cards with respect to a non-confidence vote. Huh. Karen? Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, when we take a step back, I, I think that the Prime Minister would be wise to recognize that he has a minority government and that Canadians had gone to the polls uh, you know, within what, a year and a half ago, and specifically voted to give the Liberals a minority government because they didn't have confidence 
uh, in that government. So to act, to come up with these bold policy changes, there's nothing wrong with reviewing them and bringing those types of changes to the public during an election. But to impose them at this time, I think, would be premature and, to Charles' point, very, very risky. And I also think having an election right now is very, very risky because we don't, for all, for all kinds of reasons, I don't think anybody wants an election. And so I would just, for the prime minister to be bold, and it's great to have a vision, it's great to have a sense of how we're going to pull through this, that's all important, but we're not through it yet. We're not even remotely through it yet. And so to be to be uh, positioning this government as a majority government with a mandate to do these major social changes, I think is overreach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, do you think they will do it nonetheless? With the support of the NDP, perhaps, but I, I, I think that it's very, very risky. And I'm, I'm, you know, what, what they, they might get it through, but I'm not sure the public is going to appreciate it. Oh, okay. That's, uh, and it's very interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I did an interview with an official from Elections Canada, and sorry, they are not ready. Yeah. Um, and I don't uh, think anybody's ready for an election. No. Uh, and uh, some of in some ways, shockingly not ready, the kinds of questions that they could not answer. So uh, I don't know. I think that uh, an election now would be a bit of a hot mess. Uh, Charles, do you worry about that? Uh, well, I noticed there was an election in New Brunswick yesterday, and it seemed to go very well. They had a record number of mail-in ballots, and I note that the incumbent government um, was uh, formerly a minority, is now a majority as of this morning, um, owing largely to the perception that the premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, had uh, done a good job of managing COVID. So from a political perspective, I imagine, you know, folks like Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, uh, John Horgan, the Premier of British Columbia, have to be looking hard at those results and wondering, hmm, you know, am I better off going this fall um, than I will be going at some point in 2021 or 2022 when we're really starting to feel the economic impacts of COVID and the, the shock to the global economy. So from a political perspective, yeah, I think there's probably some, some consideration of, uh, of uh, an election call. Is it going to happen this fall? I doubt it. I think there's too much uncertainty around the second wave. Um, but, you know, when governments, if, if governments are inclined to bring forward big, bold policy changes. It is sometimes appropriate, as was the case in the 1988 free trade election, to go to the polls to seek a mandate from the people. And that's what Conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney did. And um, it it would not be unprecedented. Uh, Okay. Um, Karen, uh, you know, uh, throughout most of this, Premier Doug Ford has gotten very high marks for his handling of this, but there is ongoing anxiety about the return to school, the arrangements for the return to school. The government keeps saying it's safe. Uh, we're seeing a surge in infections, and we have uh, teachers' unions at war with them again, and parents may be saying, why didn't they lower class sizes? So do you think that the Premier has lost ground in terms of public opinion, and what do you make of his, uh, he, he's uh, had some very stern warnings and saying, hey, you know, I won't hesitate to put you back in lockdown if this keeps going up. Yeah, I, so I think there's lots of things going on there. And, um, you know, certainly as a parent with school-aged children, um, I, I, I think that, you know, COVID has revealed 
not just the flaws in long-term care and in our public health system, but also the, the, the challenges and gaps within our education system. And it is amazing to me to think that the school had, the school board and the government knew they were shutting down in March. They were going to have to reopen at some point, And they're still scrambling to figure out what that looks like. And it's middle of September. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about the importance of educating our kids, getting them back to school. But, you know, these kids are our future economy. And these kids need an education. And it, 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 it blows my mind that they haven't been able to figure out in the last six months how to make it safe. Like, you know, John's point earlier, you know, grocery stores had to pivot really quickly and they put the plexiglass up. Why, don't, why doesn't every desk have plexiglass barrier on it? Those aren't hard things to do. Um, you know, if you know you don't have enough space, why don't you create um, additional space in gyms or use community centers or churches? There's space available and it's just blowing my mind. And it's not just the Ford government. It's, it's the collective attitude that it's easier to fight than fix this problem. And this, we are not the first jurisdiction to be getting our kids back to school. In fact, we're the later jurisdictions. You know, Europe is already back. Quebec is already back. BC is already back. We can't seem to figure this out. And it, it, for me, it's a systemic problem. It's not a Ford government problem. It's not a teacher's union problem. It's not an administrative problem. It's a collective shared problem that everyone has lost track of what's really important here. Uh, I didn't hear you mention the school boards. Is it is it a school board problem, John Capobianco, or uh, is is the bottom line, uh, you know, with the government, the buck stops here? Well, I, I think Karen makes a really good point, and in fact, really good points with respect to this. I think there is a collective issue here that, that needs to be addressed, but I do, you know, I do, and I have in the past uh, sort of pointed my finger to the unions and, and the school boards to say that, you know, there, how, how come there are some school boards across the province that are handling this better than others? Uh, you know, in, in some cases, some have, have started uh, planning way back, you know, in, in July and August, knowing that there might be the chance of, of school returning because the premier's always said that school, you know, uh, might, may very well be back in September. So there were plans that were put in place. And, and yeah, the, the, the premier has certainly put a lot of money in, as, as has the prime minister, to education um, and, and tried to give the school boards as many resources as they possibly can with respect to PPEs and, and the, the money to hire teachers and the ability to be able to hire more teachers and even to find locations where schools might, you know, where there might not be the space in schools that they might be able to put in classes. But I know of situations where friends of mine who are parents in other jurisdictions uh, are finding that the first day or two, and some started last week, are, are you know, the schools are handling it well, that, that the classrooms are well-spaced, that, that they have cohorts that uh, don't intermix with each other. So there are some situations that are handling it better than others. So I do think that there's got to be some you know, responsibility here for for the the school boards and and also the unions who, from the very beginning, fought this and never wanted this to happen. And then and there wasn't sort of a can-do attitude to say, okay, look, you know what? For the sake of kids and for the sake of teachers, and then the fact that safety is paramount, let's all try to work together to make sure that this this takes place in a way that is safe and sound. Uh, and I also commend the Toronto District School Board, by the way, who did delay uh, an extra week for the sake of trying to get their stuff in order. So you know what? Karen is right that there's, a, there's enough to kind of go around and we all need to look at this from, from the perspective. But I just say that, you know, we all have to um, ensure that, that we have that can-do attitude to make sure that we are able to and look at issues because as the Premier said, there's going to be bumps along the way and he admitted it, acknowledged it, 
uh, and said that, you know, but we'll work through them as we have in the early days of COVID when, when you know, shelves were being emptied and, and people weren't able to do, to do some shopping. Things changed and people made adapted and pivoted to, to ensure that it happened. Why can't we do that with schools? Uh, Charles, uh, Charles of the teaching family, do you want to take this up? <laughs> well, I mean, the blame game is nothing new in politics and blaming school boards and blaming unions is par for the course. It's interesting that you don't see Doug Ford doing that at the moment. Um, and I think that's a very prudent course on his part, um, because especially in the case of school boards, these are partners. These are the folks who actually have to make sure the classrooms are set up properly and, and running safely. But frankly, I think over the course of the summer, um, the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, had set a direction to school boards, which very suddenly in August was upended. And certain options that school boards had been asked to consider were taken off the table. Some people suggest that it was a cost-saving measure. Others suggest that the government looked at the numbers and said, hey, you know, these are pretty low. We can probably uh, uh, take a more aggressive approach in terms of getting kids back in the classroom. Toronto Mayor John Tory offered community centres by way of additional classroom space. The offer was not taken up. It was, um, and it was the decision of the provincial provincial government not to take it up. So I think we have to be very careful before passing blame onto others, because ultimately the buck stops with the government of Ontario, with the Minister of Education, and with the Premier. Okay, let me give the numbers out again. I'd like to hear from people about both of these issues, the federal government, the possibility that uh, our social safety net is uh, going to be bumped up and, and way to the left, and whether you agree that it's being done under the COVID, uh, the cover of COVID or not, but it looks like that's what's on the table. Of course, the Liberal government is being uh, propped up and being supported by the NDP, so that would only make sense moving to the left. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Also, if you have any thoughts, worries about the rising number of cases, now today the numbers were not as bad as they were yesterday, down from 313 to 250, but still an increase from those heady days when we were having very small increases every day. You know, um, are we in a second wave? Probably not. But, you know, the fall is definitely here. We're going to have to be moving indoors more. And that means people are going to have to curtail their activities. And I don't know if that's happening again. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. I am on with our Strategy panel, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Bird. And I would like to get to an issue that, uh, I mean, it's easy for it to get bogged down in uh, a lot of bureaucratic stuff. But, but here's the thing. And this is a story that was broken by the Globe and Mail. Kudos to them. Uh, and that is that our early warning system for pandemics was basically non-operational before this hit, before the coronavirus, COVID-19 hit, there were complaints that uh, the people put in charge were not listening. There were people who had been in charge who were reassigned. It was not operational. And then, to me, 
more shocking or most shocking is in another interview, the health minister, Patty Haidu, she didn't even know this was happening. So uh, it looks like now maybe they are writing the ship. It's being reinstated, the agency, and they're bringing someone in from another agency to run it. The person who had been in charge is uh, retiring, and they're bringing somebody else in, also somebody without scientific experience. Uh, you know, to me, this looks like a big failure, but one that is probably difficult to grasp. John, what's your view of this? Yeah, I would say this has not been a particularly good week or two for uh, for Minister Hayden um, <clears throat> over the last little while, notwithstanding this issue with respect to the, the, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network. But also, she was uh, there was an interview uh, with, with the minister where she admittedly, admitted that she knew about this in December. And that uh, that she was told about it, and she knew the severity of this uh, this uh, this you know it wasn't called a pandemic at the time, but certainly this uh, this this impending issue with respect to this virus, um, and didn't do anything about it, and, and then it wasn't until you know way beyond other jurisdictions taking action where when Canada took action. So so that's one problem. This problem with respect to not knowing about this particular you know network being disbanded uh, and only now sort of reinstating it after the news of, of hit, I think just does not speak well to her having a grasp of this file and and certainly the the government in, in, in charge. Uh, I think is going to have to sort of do some some accounting for this as well. But look, you know, we're still in the pandemic, and and now's not the time to start pointing fingers. There'll be a lot of time after this for for folks to pass judgment on whether or not the government did their job. There's no question the prime minister scored huge points early on with respect to the early release of funding and and making sure that businesses survived and 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 trying to stem uh, those losing jobs as much as he possibly can. But there's this kind of stories that come out that really make people kind of wonder, you know, did we really, did we really have a handle on this early on and, and whether or not there was some blame here to, to be, uh, to be focused on? Well, I have to say, John, I disagree with you. I don't think it's too early to, <clears throat> excuse me, point a finger at Patty Hyde. Let me tell you where she totally lost me on this. So, uh, I can't remember how long ago, but months ago, no less than a liberal luminary, and that is Erwin Kotler, who is the former justice minister and an internationally renowned human rights advocate, along with a global group of notable persons, started calling attention to the fact that in China, whether it was uh, the Communist Party or local officials or whatever, they were not giving out the information. At the same time that he was ringing the alarm, she called people who were calling attention to this conspiracy theorists. I mean, you know, I, I, it just left me with my jaw dropped. And my impression is, and this is not partisan, liberal, I mean, I don't, think this should be a partisan issue is that, you know, this person is just out of her depth. Charles? Well, I mean, in fairness to Minister Haju, um, the the comments around conspiracy theories really had more to do with people who were using the pandemic as an excuse to launch xenophobic accusations against Asian Canadians, and that's obviously. Very I don't think they were. They were. Like they, ours. That's well, not how I heard a lot of it. 
Libby, I'm sure you'll agree. But with regards to the Global Public Health Network, I mean, the key decision was made in May of 2019 when senior officials within the health department determined that GFIN, as it's known, that its resources could be put to better use working on domestic projects. But the problem continued in as much as GFIN was a really, really sophisticated data gathering organization within the Canadian government. Um, I mean, they were the kinds of officials who could tell that spikes in the price of pork bellies in certain countries could indicate a problem with, you know, the, arise, the rising of swine flu. And um, so scaling them back was mistake number one. Mistake number two was they were, they, they've still been functioning. They haven't been issuing public alerts, but they've still been doing their jobs. But lo and behold, officials were told that their focus as early as 2020, this year, which should be on official statements coming out of the Chinese government and out of the World Health Organization that other sources of intelligence were just rumors. And this, I mean, you're talking about terrible timing, but what's, what's, what you have here is a situation where scientists are reporting to bureaucrats. And the Globe and Mail, in its first story in July, noted that it was under Prime Minister Stephen Harper that the Conservative government began to reshape the public health department in 2014, reducing the clout of the chief public health officer and restricting control over staffing and budgets. And to quote the Globe and Mail, what they said was, this amounted to a demotion of scientific voices within the department and arguably a way to escalate political influence in the decision-making process, end quote. Very typical of the Harper government and its scientists. And that's in the Globe. I'm not, I'm, I'm quoting from the Globe and Mail. Yeah, but the Liberals didn't do anything different. Right. Okay, well, uh, I guess there's no shortage of blame. I'm going to take one call before we uh, go around the virtual table to wrap things up. Jerry and Sutton. Hi, Jerry. Hi, you're going to be. I'm listening to what's going on. And with the worry about second wave coming on, well, we've also got winter coming on, which means people won't be gathering at beaches, parks. Winter sports like skating, skiing will probably be curtailed, which means people will be spending more time at home. So the less people moving around, the less chance of contact with the, with the virus. And why hasn't the government issued some form of sample kit? that could be sent out to every household so we get tested, find out who's a carrier and who's not, and I'd be able to isolate the carriers which are spreading it. Well, uh, there's home testing kits on the horizon, but we don't have them yet. And uh, the problem is that, uh, yeah, people won't be gathering in beaches and in parks, but they will be back gathering indoors. Jerry, thanks for your call. Okay, uh, that's basically all the time we have for the segment. So let's go around the virtual table, starting with Karen. What would you like to leave us with? Well, thank you, Libby. I, I really think now is the time for the government uh, to not be threatening back to phase or like a lockdown in phase two, but to really be forward thinking to say, this is going to be with us for the next 12 to 18 months, irrespective of vaccine. So whatever restrictions we have, let's look at them for the next 12, 6, 12 to 18 months. And the numbers are going to rise and fall within that time period. But we're going to actually put a strategy in place that where we can bring some certainty. And if the restrictions are the bars close at 10, fine. We know that's the case for the next year. 
but it's the kinds of things that we need to be more forward thinking on so that we can help people live within parameters that don't shift. Charles. Stay home, stay safe, and uh, if you're home two weeks from tonight, you can watch the first presidential debate between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. (laughs) And uh, I I will say, um, I think there's a lot of folks out there who believe that um, this thing is over, that Donald Trump is a dead man walking. Don't believe it for a second. It is a much, much closer race than most people understand. Florida is absolutely neck and neck. And uh, there's a lot of um, shifting opinion going on in uh, in the U.S. Uh, electorate at the moment. And I would just say that, you know, a lot of people point to 2016 and um, how terrible the Trump campaign was. And wasn't it just a fluke that he got elected? Uh, the Republican campaign in 2020 is much more sophisticated and much more effective. So I won't be surprised if we're sitting here uh, in early November talking about how Trump pulled it off. Okay, John. Just quickly, I, I just want to give a shout out to Premier Higgs and, and the uh, and his team out there in New Brunswick for a great win. Uh, another conservative-led uh, <clears throat> uh, province is uh, is always good for for democracy and for our country. Uh, and for me, the focus will be um, the throne speech next week, uh, and also just to see how uh, how school evolves. I know that with kids back to school in Toronto this week, and others, you know, the next couple of weeks will be interesting to see how we're we're handling cases. And I still think Premier Ford is handling uh, the whole issue uh, well and, and listening to uh, his health authorities. Okay, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, John Capobianco, Charles Bird, and Karen Stintz. We'll talk to you next week, if not sooner. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Bye Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.